Welcome to the official Cryptids Anomalies and the Paranormal Society's podcast. I'm your host, Barnaby, and you're listening to Whispers from the Dark. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Whispers from the Dark. I am your host, Barnaby, and today we have a very special guest on the show who has done a lot of things. I, I'm not even going to go and run down your resume or anything like that because I'm sure we'll we'll get to a lot of that. Uh, my guest is Sheetan Noor. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you. Good. I am I'm very happy to have you on the show. Um I, I appreciate you taking time and uh, wanting to be on it. Oh, no problem. <laughs> so you have done, uh, we'll, we'll start with the uh, physical attributes, I guess we'll say. You uh, you have a magazine. You have several magazines that you edit. Actually, I am the owner of those magazines now. So there, there is Squatch GQ magazine, which is a little bit more... Um, like the Bigfoot, I don't want to say celebrities, but the people you would see online and the more popular stuff. And then there is um, Squatch in Cryptozoology Digest, which takes a look at the more science-based evidence analysis and um, researchers. Then there is uh, G Hunter Paranormal Digest, which focuses on the paranormal, haunted locations, the unexplained, um, dinosauria, and prehistoric creatures, um, which is, that's what it focuses on. Um, uh, we just launched, or I just launched the um, newest issue, which is all about ancient sharks, and there are interviews with the very top um, paleontologist um, research is on um, very uh, specific um, species like Megalodon, like Helicoporian, like Crexi uh, Rhinia. Uh, um, so that is the newest one. Um, we also have doctors uh, in the summertime. We'll be launching the Weird Trails magazine and also one on um, rock hounding and, uh, prospecting. Wow. You are super busy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's how I like to be. Never not working. <laughs> Speaking of busy entering our podcast here is Ma who came in late because, uh, there she is. So Hi, Ma. <laughs> Hello. I was working. So, and I got that's talked okay. to, so Got, took a little longer. Ooh, you got talked to. You're in well, trouble. Well, yeah, and we, yeah, we're never done with work. <laughs> and uh, uh, Sheetan, you obviously know my mom. Uh, she is a yes, member of our I, team. I, I love your mom. I've met her at several <laughs> of the different uh, events that we, we've, you know, both been presenting at, and uh, it's always fun to have conversations with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I and thought it'd too. be fun. I thought it'd be fun to have her on the podcast today as well. So. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, bringing that up, I mean, we are, we've been at a lot of, uh, shows together. We met you over in, um, I, I can't remember the name of the event, but it was the, um, Michigan Bigfoot. Uh, yeah. The, conference. um, last July at the Ann Arbor so, yep. Bigfoot conference. Yep. yep. Yeah. That was the first time that we met you and we've seen you, I think at three other events since then. So yeah. our paths have crossed quite a bit. So <laughs> 
speaking of places, you will be uh, at um, the conference that we're help running in uh, June in uh, the Marinette Menominee uh, Bigfoot Conference in Upper Michigan. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm certainly looking forward to that. And it's weird how um, uh, things work out because I have my my first three um, uh, events uh, of the season. I have the Vista Bray Road um, conference in April, and then there is a Paracon up in Thunder Bay or at um, at the Thunder Bay hotel bed and breakfast up in Marquette in May and then in June I, I have your conference so I'll be going all over <laughs> northern Michigan and uh, Wisconsin for a while cool and uh, you'll be speaking at our convention you won't just be set up so uh, what without giving too much away <laughs> what is your your cliff note real like two-minute elevator pitch of what we get to hear you talk about in June so, um, there's so many topics that I can, you know, <laughs> present on, um, you know, what I have been doing is if it, if it's a Paracon or a, a cryptology event and the, if the, if the people, you know, in charge haven't specified, well, we want you to talk on this subject. I've been kind of leaving it up to the the audience as to what they want to hear, um, because as I found out at the Ann Arbor Bigfoot conference, yes, everybody was there to hear about Bigfoot, but after a full day of Bigfoot presentations, mm -hmm. they kind of wanted something else. They kind of wanted, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, something a little bit different. So I ended up doing my presentation on lizard men, and people <laughs> really enjoyed it. Um, so. You know, they. I, I I I like giving the audience that ability to, you know, show of hands who wants to hear about this or who wants <laughs> to hear about this, um, because that you know that seems to intrigue them even more. Is oh, we get a choice, <laughs> and yeah. it's like yeah, yes, you do. <laughs> so um, I think that's what I will I will do. I will I will bring you know I I always bring my my flash drive with all my presentations on it, and I'll open it up to them and say. So do you want to hear about Bigfoot or do you want to hear about Lake Monsters or do you want to hear about Dogman or the Nain Rouge or, you know, uh, any of those topics. So, Well, that sounds great. I don't know what Barb thinks about that, but I, I'm all, all for this. And now I'm all intrigued with Lizard Man and stuff. So, um, They yeah. did say up there, the, some of the committee members, they said they get uh, inundated with the shipwrecks. Stories, oh yes, I, I can definitely there. talk about shipwrecks too. Oh um, no, they, they get too much of that. They want oh, more okay. of something else. You yeah, know? we we uh so we were talking about you Christmas at the meeting. The Christmas ship or something. I don't yeah, know. and something uh, about that. your whole list of presentations that yeah. you sent me of of available <laughs> options and stuff, and and they just their eyes got wide like, oh wow, you know. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are a veritable wealth of knowledge. <laughs> It comes from doing a lot of research, which mm -hmm. luckily I enjoy doing. I, I do love, um, you know, research and I, I do love finding out new information. So uh, for me, that, that's not, you know, such a horrible thing. But I know other people are like, I have to <laughs> I have to find, you know, information on this. And it's like, well, you know, if you want to learn, you have to, you know, you have to, to be able to ask questions and find the answers to those 
Mm -hmm. And research isn't just looking in one book, it's multiple books. Oh, yes, multiple multiple books, going to locations, talking to people, um, tracking down, you know, even if it's just, you know, a little obscure fact, sometimes that makes all the difference, you know, whether you're looking, you know, at a a Bigfoot or a Dogman. You know, those key little details... Um, really do make a difference. And there's also the difference of opinions, you know, the mm-hmm. two different sides of the story. Oh, yeah. You know, you always find those. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So what uh, what is your what has been your favorite uh, topic of research? Because I, I I'm pretty sure you're more like into the cryptozoology than the paranormal. I know you do both, but. I, right? I do I, I do do both of them and I would say for cryptozoology I will always love my lake monsters um, <laughs> there's just something fascinating about that um, because the the possibilities are endless um, you know especially when we look at like our great lakes our great lakes will never be drained um, you know in our lifetime so there's the there is the 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 um, Schrodinger's, you know, um, theory that there Mm -hmm. is the potential for anything to exist down there because we don't know. Mm -hmm. We can't see, you know, straight through the water into the depths. Uh, Certainly not in Lake Superior, you can't. Um, (laughs) Otherwise, we'd know every shipwreck that was on the bottom Mm -hmm. of the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And so that possibility of, you know, vast huge bodies of water and what could or could not be swimming through them that will always be a curiosity for me and then for the paranormal um i'm always intrigued by the information that i come across with the devil's triangles which our great lakes each has at least one devil's triangle lake superior has two so though that is always a fascination of um, anytime you have large bodies of water and anomalous activity of time loss, of you know different things appearing and disappearing, um, there's something to that and something to these bodies of water where um, you take it for granted that you you think you're just looking at a lake, but there could be so many other potential things going on that you or we as human beings just do not understand yet of how dimensions open up or portals and how bodies of water could actually be in you know a conductor for that mm-hmm. um you know that to me is just fascinating and um you know i can sit in a dark you know building all night long asking questions and getting evp answers and that's fascinating you know i I love it when I get the EVPs or my REM pod goes off, but that intangible factor of the of the devil's triangle angles of the historical information that you know precedes them and surrounds them, and then the you know people just having random experiences um, interacting with them that that is very fascinating to me. Definitely. So, do you think that uh, the the Devil's Lake triangles and stuff in the Great Lakes, is that similar to like the Bermuda Triangle and stuff? Oh, yeah. Yes. So um, the Devil's Triangles um, that we have here in the Great Lakes, um, the, the major one that 
pretty much everybody you know has heard of is the Lake Michigan one that runs from Ludington, Michigan, over to uh, uh, Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin, down to Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then straight back up. And it's a huge body of water, but this is very similar with the activity and the strange um, disappearances, sightings um, that people have had in the Bermuda, uh, the Bermuda Triangle, which is a Devil's Triangle. There's also, um, like I said, each one of the other Great Lakes have Devil's Triangles. We know that there are documented Devil's Triangles near Japan, um, near Australia, uh, Alaska. Um, there's actually one that's inland in um, the New England area, and that's called the Bridgewater Triangle. But interesting enough, there is quite a bit of swampland that's associated with it. So there again, you have activities of you know of various you know types happening around a body of water, and um, so it's not just on land, um, but also on water too. Hmm. Interesting. I know that the. Um Another speaker at our con- our conference is uh, Ken Gerhard, who will be yep. there on June, and he, I believe, is the host of uh, is it the Alaskan Triangle show or something? No, up there. no, he um, he is associated with a show um, about Alaska, but it's okay. um, when people go missing in Alaska. Okay, because there's there's um, the there's there's two episodes because I know. Um, there's there's the one on the Alaskan Triangle, and then there was uh, the, that one, obviously. But I, I must have got them mixed up. So, yeah, um, I do not. I know that Cliff Backrack um, from Finding Bigfoot um, uh, uh, has been on that show, and Adam Adam Davies has been on that show. But um, mm-hmm. the Alaska show that Ken was associated with was Missing People in Alaska. Um, Alaska Missing or something like that. Okay. So, yeah. um, which documented the the significant reports of people just vanishing and going, you know, disappearing in Alaska, and that seems to be um, a a very serious issue that they have up there, and they can't blame it all on you know wild predators like grizzly bears. Or wolves, or any of you know um, of the bigger species um, that are predatory, um, because a lot of times they're not finding any remains. They're not finding any, um, you know, because if you if you're if you're attacked, um, you know, your clothing, they will drag you off and eat, you know, your carcass. But there's parts of you that just don't you know interest them so there's you know if you're if you're thinking okay if i'm in alaska i'm going to be wearing you know survival gear i'm going to be wearing you know clothes that's appropriate for the season and the train that i'm going on i'm probably going to have a backpack for water and film gear um some survival stuff probably going to have my cell phone or a walkie-talkie on me and these are items that are not being found when mm-hmm. the bodies go missing mm-hmm. or like they find just the shoes or, or when they do find them they they don't find the shoes on them right yeah and it's it's weird 
things like that. Um, so I, I, I know that when people get into survival mode, um, you know, the, their car slid off the road and, and they have to hike five miles back into town in a blizzard, your mind does weird things because once you get hypothermia, you actually think that you're burning up that you're just so hot, but it's your body compensating for that. So people will actually start taking off their clothing to cool down, not realizing that your body is trying to keep you in that safe zone of keeping you warm. And people take off, you know, their clothing to cool down. And that's actually the reverse of what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously. And people, you know, there's, 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 uh, Lots of cases of, you know, people, um, they don't know how to behave or how to act when they are out in the elements and don't know what the different signs are that you should be looking for that, hey, um, hypothermia is setting in or, hey, um, frostbite is setting in or, you know, you're going to need to build a shelter really soon. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people are prepared for like um, being out in the woods and they don't realize that when you go out there, you know, to to bring things in case that happens, you know, or what to bring, you know, Um, just like my experience. You know, I I never grew up going camping or anything like that. And the stuff that I've experienced out in the woods and, um, you know, I've, I've learned to pack the van with things just by things that we've happened, you know we go out and do something and then all of a sudden, well, I wish I would have had this or I wish I would have had that. And maybe this would be handy. And, and, you know, you, you, you build on your supplies and that because you're, you're out there more often, but these people that go out and, you know, just get, you know, their car breaks down at the side of the road, like you said, and um, they don't have those supplies for one, but even the people that are prepared that go out uh, hiking and backpacking and stuff that have, you know, days worth of food and extra clothes and all that stuff. Those people are still going missing as well. Yep. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, you know, cringeworthy because you, you think you have everything you need. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I'm one of those, you know, people who like takes into the whole, you know, picture of, okay, I'm going to need this, this, this. So I end up with a 20 pound backpack. So it <laughs> yeah. probably only needs to be a 10 pound backpack, mm-hmm. but it's like, I, I'm playing out each case scenario in my head. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I always make sure I have that extra, you know, a couple of bottles of water and granola bars and a first aid kit and, uh, you know, tick removal kit and, you know, the, um, survival stuff. And, but there's little weird, you know, you, you can never count on the weird factor mm-hmm. of all it takes is one misstep or mm-hmm. one, you know, weird situation. And suddenly your, your, your hike through the woods that was supposed to be a simple, easy, you know, hike um, turns into something that you were not expecting. And if you're out on one of these more remote trails, you might not be encountering human beings for a while to get yourself aid. Um, and then when you do encounter humans, you have to kind of make that decision. Are these people that I can trust or are these people mm-hmm. that are going to take advantage of the situation and of me? So it's, you know, there's a lot of things that people have, you know, it's not just, um, 
getting out of your, your car and, and going for a walk around the park, when you're going hiking on trails that are are maybe not as frequented as, as um, you know, some of the trails are, you really are opening up to a lot of um, possibilities of accidents. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't realize how easy it is to get lost. Um, you start, you, you know, walk five feet off that trail or 10 feet off that trail to maybe go pee or something in the woods and you, you get turned around and suddenly, um, you can't find the trail again. Yep. That's you true. venture 10 feet this way, 10 feet that way. And you're stumbling over a rock formation that's covered with leaves, twisting an ankle mm -hmm. and um you put yourself in a position where you can't get back to the trail definitely yep. so we want to go back to the uh the lake monster stuff because i think that was really cool and uh so you have an entire book here i had to get up and get it that's where i was wandering around <laughs> <laughs> my books i tried to get Mata grab it and she couldn't find it on the shelf yeah. so I, I have them in alphabetical order you know, so oh. i don't know what but you know bifocals don't work all the time <laughs> <laughs> but you have uh, lake monsters and odd creatures of the Great Lakes. Yep. Very cool. I have a copy of that right here. So, um, <laughs> oh, Ma wants it. <laughs> so, what? Uh, and, and while we're on the topic, you also have another book here, uh, Mothman and Other Flying Creatures of the Midwest. Yep. For those, yep. And, those are those are my two um, cryptozoology books. Before I became involved with writing for the magazines, and now the magazines take up. Um, I, I'm sure the more that I I produce them, the easier it's going to be. So, but mm -hmm. right now my focus for for writing is producing the magazines. Cool. So, do you? I know. I know. I bought these from you at the convention, but can they get these online as well? Oh yeah, yes. Okay. Both of those books and um, the magazines will all be available on Amazon. Okay. Your magazine, is that actually a print magazine or is that more like an online one? There, so I am doing it both as a print on demand through Kindle, okay. um, direct Amazon, mm -hmm. and also as a ebook or a Kindle book. Um, so I know people are, you know, some people really like the physical page turning copy, you know, that they can hold in the hands and other people are like, you know, I, I really don't need the, the, um, bookshelf of, of, of books that, um, you know, or magazines. So they like the, the digital better. So I, I am doing it so that they have the opportunity for either or. You need to also have an audiobook version for people like me who don't have time to physically sit down <laughs> oh, and read. <laughs> that, that would be, that would be a lot of work. <laughs> or a podcast version where, where you just sit down and read the magazine to us. That would be <laughs> ideal. Um, well, I, I'm sure I, I do have my own podcast called Into the Liminal Abyss. And I'm sure wherever my producer is, who's probably, probably would like to wring my neck, but um, I'm sure he would love that because he's always like, okay, we are out of episodes. And it's like, oh. um, yeah, I just gave you 10 episodes. Oh, that was 10 weeks ago. Okay, hold on. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, I know that feeling. Uh, 
we we <laughs> we thankfully now are recording on the road at the conventions and stuff, so we get an opportunity to meet everyone and hear stories on the road. But uh, before we started this, uh, yeah, we were hurting for episodes for a while, and there would be weeks at a time when I just wouldn't have anything out, or we'd be too busy. But but this is this is nice. I mean, we got this brand new setup and everything here, so. Yeah, and that's the that's the way to do it. I know that um, a lot of podcasts do that. Two 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 Paranormal does that. Yep. They go to different events and um, interview people at the events. Um, Uncomfortable Podcast does that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a smart move. That is a very, I used to do that. Used to do that when I had time when I was at events <laughs> um, to sit and talk to people and and you know do a half an hour forty five minute uh, interview. Um, the key is to find a location that there's not a lot mm-hmm. of people um, at the event so that you can get that um, that little quiet time with, you know, interviewing the, the guests. So, mm-hmm. um, but it, 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 you know, hey, it works. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need more lackeys on your team to uh, do it for you. So. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to have podcasts recorded for me while I was in the other room speaking at the last convention. So there you go. <laughs> Oh, hey, that's even better. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's, you know, when I'm traveling to different events, it's normally just me and like mm-hmm. my dog. Yep. And I, I mean, I'm sure it would be entertaining for my my little dog to sit on somebody's lap and, you know, I act like they're asking him questions. But um, your dog did that with me to- <laughs> while you were gone. Yeah. <laughs> they talk to me a lot. <laughs> They're usually pretty good. Like nobody yeah. usually realizes I have them in their crate underneath the yeah. table until um, I moved. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, every time I moved, they just you know, everybody go. There's a dog under there. I'm like, yeah. Yep. It's okay. <laughs> it's just talking to me. So back to your lake monsters here. Have yeah. you ever actually gone over to uh, Loch Ness? I have not had that opportunity yet. Um, I had a lot of travel plans that were changed when Mm -hmm. the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and still some of them are, are up in the air. There is, um, along the, the, um, Dorset coast of England there, that is, um, where Mary, um, um, Annings, um, famously found the first plesiosaurus, uh, um, skeleton uh, in that area so there is actually a very nice natural history museum there which with a lot of these fossils but more importantly every may at the beginning of every may they have what they call the marine reptile conference which okay. has been canceled for the last three years hmm. now my plans are hopefully next year is to make it to that conference do some fossil collecting, you know, right there um, because they do take you on a field trip um, through the museum to fossil collect. Um, explore the museum and then from there jump over to Loch Ness and do some Nessie um, uh, tourism um, as it would be. Uh, so probably about a 10-day trip. Um, but with everything being shut down the last couple of years, it, it's one of those things that it's like, Oh, nope, they're not going to run this year. I got to wait. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's on my bucket list for the future, but I did make it to Lake Champlain, um, last, uh, June and was investigating for champ. Mm-hmm. 
So mm -hmm. I, I'll be going back there in August of this year for the champ days and um, working with a team that's already there um, to see if we can find, um, you know, any champ uh, evidence. Cool. I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, know that there was a whole champ festival out there. It, um, it's a one day event and it was very interesting when I went there last June because, um, the, the Lake Champlain, you know, I had a two week long trip and Lake Champlain was like four days of it. So I had made, um, uh, you know, some, uh, appointments to talk with different people around the lake, um, thinking that there was much more champ um, related um, sites and tourism than what there actually was. And when I got there, Port Henry, which is on the New York side, has about the most for mm -hmm. champ um, tourism. Mm -hmm. And I, I, um, got to uh, get a little tour of the town um, by Andrea and her husband, Kyle, and got their um, story and experience of Champ um, that uh, they had witnessed. And then they said, well, if you go up around the way, um, there is a little, um, like, tour, you know, tour shop store that's called the Champ Outpost. So I pull in there and I'm thinking, there's going to be Champ stuff everywhere. And they had um, a coffee mug. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll buy the coffee mug. And then I was on my way up to Vermont, um, St. Albans, Vermont, to do the actual expedition. Um, now, as things worked out, I, there was only two of us who actually showed up for the expedition. And things were not quite working out. So I... Um, we did one full day at the lake, and then I ended up going the next day to back to Burlington, Vermont, to the Echo Center there, which is a kind of, um, it's an aquarium slash uh, science museum. So they did have a, a very small, I want to say six by 10 foot exhibit in the aquarium area for Champ. But the nice thing was that their their um, gift shop had a lot of champ stuff, so I ended up like buying quite a bit in there. And then uh, <laughs> there was different um, there down in one of the little um, beach parks or bay parks. There was a plaque to champ, so it was very it was very interesting that even though Lake Champlain is is known for champ they are really not cashing in on it and, and making a huge, um, you know, uh, uh, thing of it. Like, um, for instance, like Rylander, you know, Wisconsin, yeah. the hodag is huge. Mm -hmm. There's hodag everywhere. Um, and it's, it's, you know, very well celebrated. And so um, to me, there's a lot of missed opportunities around Lake Champlain where, that could be a whole crypto, you know, crypto and paranormal tourism is one of the um, new moving forces in the tourism, you know, industry. And mm -hmm. so they they could really be doing a lot more and having a lot more potential um, with that. 
um, around the Lake Champlain area that I, I just, you know, was um, very stunned that, you know, they weren't, you know, taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. That That's Tegan telling uh, telling me that I'm not allowed to move her blanket. <laughs> we'll stop moving her blanket. That, that bark in the background. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you know anything about me, it's, it's uh, you know, if there's a little gift shop, I'm going to find it. So that's very disappointing to hear that there's not enough uh, Champ merchandise out there. I mean, that's that's a make or break for me. I, I don't even want to go investigate it now. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's if, you, if you love being on the lake, yeah. um, definitely. And Port Henry does have some, you know, interesting, cool Champ stuff. Um, now, Champ Days is, it's I believe they have a parade. They have, um, I'm one of the, the um, celebrity guests that they have for people to come meet this year because I do have the Lake Monster book. And, um, you know, they have uh, in the one downtown park, they do, they, they are setting up where, you know, people, um, you know, it's going to be, I don't want to say farmer's market, but, it, you know, lots of vendors and, and stuff like that. So, there's so the potential that? for more champ stuff to be there, but um, <laughs> really, I would think that there would be like people like you know roadside stands selling you know a map, map of champ sightings and you know champ toys and stuff like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when is the the champ days? When are you going to be there? That that is in August. Um, and I'm trying to think. I believe it's either August 12th or 18th. Okay. I know that it's a Saturday. So I think it's the second Saturday in August. Cool. So I, I recently, like I follow you on Facebook. We're friends on there. And I I, I saw your whole trip to, to Champ and all that stuff. So I, th- I thought that was really cool. I, I looked at those pictures and that. Um, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, with, with all the stuff that you're into in that with, you know, uh, paranormal and that you're also really big into the dinosaurs and oh, uh, yes. prehistoric I animals love my and dinosaurs. <laughs> and, and that's something that I mean, maybe maybe it's just like biased or something, but I don't see that a lot in these uh, cryptozoologists and stuff. They don't discuss uh, the dinosaurs. So I think that's really refreshing to have uh, your your viewpoint on that stuff as well. So the the interesting thing that I have found is both a writer and editor author and investigator is that for cryptozoologists yes we can we can theorize and we can you know um guesstimate that there might be extinct not extinct but extinct species of dinosaurs marine reptiles pterosaurs in little pockets around the world that have gone undiscovered and have been able to live without the influence of humans. Hmm. Paleontologists will tell you, no, that is, is um, not the case. Um, and so I have to draw a fine line um, between being a cryptozoologist researcher and investigator and being a paleontology um, enthusiast. And that comes into effect when... I'm doing interviews with paleontologists, I have to approach it from the standpoint of, I want to know more about the species. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very good at finding people, uh, paleontologists, um, you know, experts who focus on just this one, you know, 
species or a, a um, lineage of them. But in cryptozoology, we can kind of smudge that a little bit and say, well, there is, you know, possibilities like everybody thought that the, the Kraken or Kraken um, was a mythological beast for centuries until, lo and behold, giant squid were, were starting to be found. And people were like, um, oh, I guess this is a real creature <laughs> mm -hmm. that is, you know, still living in our world today. Mm -hmm. we, might, we might not be able to see them, you know, on a daily basis, but we do see the evidence of them with the carcasses being washed up on shores with um, sightings of whales that have the sucker marks on their skin. Mm -hmm. And so we do know that they exist. Mm -hmm. Scientists, um, Monster Quest went down and actually, you know, got evidence of them on video. Mm -hmm. That was groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. I will always commend Doug Hycheck for that because uh, he came up with that camera trap and um, it worked. They, they got the evidence. So there is a case in point. You know, everybody refers to the coelacanth as, you know, hey, a, a you know, uh, cryptozoology creature proven real. Well, we knew that it was in the fossil record. And the possibility of it still existing because it was an aquatic species was was a huge possibility but the giant squid for for centuries sailors had spoken of it and everybody wrote it off as mythology there's there's no way that there could be a squid that big out there and lo and behold there is so to me instead of the coelacanth being the biggest point of of you know cryptozoology being a, a real science the giant squid to me proves cryptozoology is a real science. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at these things, you know, obviously when you're out in the ocean and stuff, there's a lot of undiscovered area. Um, there's very, very much a chance like with the giant squid existing and the Megalodon and, you know, possibly the Mosasaurus and stuff like that. Um, and, and obviously the, the plesiosaur and stuff. So but but out in the ocean though you have a lot more room for these things to breed and exist unnoticed by uh, humans and that. So how do you think that these things are getting into the lake? Since in um, let me let let me ask you this first. <clears throat> do you think there's the the whole research I'm sure you're familiar with of the eels in uh, Loch Ness? So yeah. do you believe that these creatures, Champ, Nessie, um, what's his name, Pepin, Peppy, whatever mm -hmm. his name is? Um, uh, um, Pepe, well, uh, Peppy or Pippin is um, over there on your side of the, yep. of the Great Lakes um, in Lake Tippin. Yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about those creatures, do you think that those are possibly just eels? Or do you think that they actually are the, the plesiosaur creatures that people... Or maybe not a plesiosaur, but a, a type of that um, that people are seeing. So um, to answer your first question, how would they get into the Great Lakes? Well, at this point in time, they can't because of, so let's say they were going to, you know, we'll, we'll put this on the bull shark. 
let's say you're a bull shark and you're swimming up the Mississippi River because you're following fish to eat and silver carp, you know, are quite abundant in the Mississippi River, but you're only going to be able to come up the Mississippi River so far because in order to control that silver or Asian carp population, they have had to put in numerous locks and dams and gates to control those. So back in the, I, that went into effect in the 1950s. So before 1950, it was possible for bull sharks to swim up the, you know, St. Lawrence Causeway, the Mississippi River, and actually get access to the Great Lakes. But whatever is in, if we're talking about a prehistoric marine reptile, like a plesiosaur, like a mosasaur, like Archelon, the giant um, uh, turtle species, um, because we do have at least two significant giant turtle reports, this would have had to have happened a very long time ago, back when the Western Interior Sea actually cut from the Gulf of Mexico up to British Columbia. And as the land masses changed, water basins would flood. And if there is a open channel of water, aquatic species will use it. They don't care where it takes them as long as there's food and shelter, um, you know, protection, you know, so that they can swim. Um, so we did have these different areas around the Great Lakes that actually opened up as these basins and then your, um, you know, the water flow in, you know, brought in these species. Now, at one point, the great, um, the glaciers actually came through and not only did they carve out the Great Lakes even more, but anything that was in their path, um, skeletons, fossils, um, carcasses, that got pushed and scraped down into the southern states like um, Kentucky, Tennessee, lower Indiana. But then as the, the glaciers receded, those bodies of water or those bodies and basins that we know now as the Great Lakes were refilled with water uh, from different sources. So there is the potential that we have very old species down there living because we certainly know that the lake sturgeons are down there and they are a dinosaur fish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they are very archaic in their, their um, formation and their, how their bodies function in the water. And so if the lake, you know, sturgeons are down there, there's the possibility for other things to be down there. Now, when we look at, you know, I can't remember what percentage it is that um, the earth is covered in water, but it is more than the land masses. And for human beings to actually be able to document and catalog every species that's in every ounce of water on earth, that is a monumental task that I don't think will ever be fulfilled. Because when you have open bodies of water, living creatures can go anywhere they want. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of similar to, you know, Bigfoot is seen all over the world because yep. uh, at one point when you had Pangaea, you had the large landmass that covered, 
you know, you could walk from Australia all the way to, you know, Alaska or whatever. Yep. Um, and so you're, you're talking about the same thing. If the body of water is, is open or there's a river, something's going to get in. It, it has the opportunity. And, and one of the things that we found, um, you know, anybody who's done any research into um, natural species is animals, humans, birds, fish will not stay in an area that will not support them. So you're looking at migratory paths, and we know this in birds. We know this in um, fish, whales, sharks, um, you know, that they follow the, the, the food source. And Tegan, stop. Um, and wherever it's easier to make a living in the world, that's where a species will go. And so a lot of times people are, you know, it, it's if you can predict a migratory pattern for a species, then it's easier to figure out where they will be at different points of the, of the year. Like, like here in Michigan, I actually think that a lot of our Bigfoot species during the colder winter months, um, if they're not a um, hunter, meaning that they would, you know, probably track deer and feed off of deer, they're probably southern. You know, they're, they're going to go into southern Indiana where the climate is a little bit easier to live in um, than the harsh winters that we have up here in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, you know, where we, you know, we get like, you know, in one, one day we can have like, you know, 12 inches of snow, um, for us humans who are in a nice warm building, that's fine for creatures living out in the woods. Yeah. That's a, that's a major issue. I assure it might you. make it easier for predators hunting the deer, but as the deer move from cornfields to, you know, grass areas to places where people are feeding them to hunt them th themselves. This makes it more difficult for the Bigfoots because that means they have more potential of interacting with humans. Mm -hmm. I assure you as a human, 12 inches of snow outside is still not okay when you're in a building. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know we're, we're bracing it like the, the weather report yesterday or like this week was calling for like 10 inches of snow to come in last night through today. And we got like maybe two and a half inches. So I'm like, oh, finally, they lied. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. They can lie that way all they want. <laughs> so I, I'm in mid-Michigan. So it's like, it's like you know, we were, we were ready for it. And then it was like, oh, it didn't happen. It's almost kind of like, that just means it's still coming. <laughs> the next time they say that there's no and snow coming and you get had, dumped on. We had like. We had like 50 degree weather on Monday and Tuesday, and now it's back to you know, it's a it's a field of white. <laughs> yeah. So so those of you who are listening out there, we're recording this uh, towards the end of February, and I know that it's not going to air for for quite a while. So <laughs> don't get, don't don't worry about the forecast in this episode because it's it's obviously long gone. <laughs> Listen to this in the summer; it'll cool you off. Yeah. There you go. Just think about the cooler times. Yeah. Summers of snow on the ground. Yeah. Feel, feel sorry for us folks in the in the Great Lakes area. <laughs> yeah. Have to deal with snow. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so do you, you don't think that, um, or do you do, what do you think? <laughs> I'm all, I'm all flustered with this snow now. I don't want to deal with it. Getting all, getting all messed up here. Do you think that with that, um, you, I have so many questions for you. <laughs> um, see the gears going. i know there's 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 one question that Train led to another and another one and it's it's going it's still running though it's plowing <laughs> through that field over there um first of all let me ask this has to your knowledge has there been a um an edna survey of the great lakes at all so i believe that um on jeremy one of jeremy wade's shows um I don't think it was River Monsters. I think it was one of the spinoff series. They did do an eDNA test of the Great Lakes, but the only thing that they were looking for was um, the possibility of silver carp or Asian carp DNA, um, which is a, a um, huge threat here in the Great Lakes, not because they eat other fish, but because they eat the vegetation that the, the fish fry um, the, the little baby fish um, live in. So if the baby fish don't have that, you know, sanctuary of the, the algae and seaweed and stuff like that to hide in, then that wipes out generations of sports fishing. Okay. So then, then going back to the, the eDNA survey of uh, Loch Ness and stuff where they, they were looking for unidentified DNA in that, and they ended up coming up with a lot of eel DNA. So do you think that these creatures that are in uh, the Great Lakes or in Loch Ness or any of these uh, lake monsters, do you believe that they are just eels or do you believe that they are prehistoric reptiles? So... The way that I understand the process of eDNA collecting is you collect it from surfaces, bodies of water, and then you hope that the species that you're looking for, its DNA shows up in that evidence. Now, my question for deep water eDNA testing is how do they confirm that they've actually gotten, you know, water that's not on, you know, because if you look at the oceans, they are broken up into different depths mm. with the abysmal depth being the deepest. So how do you know, let's use that term abysmal depth, how do you know that these EDNS DNA tests that they ran actually went down to that depth and collected water uncontaminated from the other depths at that depth. That's a good point. Because they said that they collected at different depths, but what I saw them pulling up was an open container with water in it, and so water is fluid. It's liquid. It disperses with just the minimum of movement. So if you're pulling a, a you know ju uh, a container of this water up um, from the depths, Obviously, any wave, every any current can wash out that certain depth water and replace it with a lower value um, water from another depth. So mm -hmm. I have to question how accurate 
deep water eDNA tests actually are because they cannot confirm that, yes, they've actually gotten water from, you know, the very lowest depths of the lake. That is a or the mid-level of the lake or the upper level of the lake. Mm -hmm. And unless you're going to do, um, I don't know how long they tested or did eDNA tests for on Loch Ness. But to me, a a more scientific and more importantly effective method of doing the eDNA test was would have been to portion off quarter mile, you know, if not smaller sections of the lake and you test each one of those sections mm -hmm. at every depth to get a full, complete blanket spread readout of what is in that lake not just cherry picking here and there mm -hmm. and to me that's what that that report on Loch Ness even though they you know they said oh we did a thorough job I want to see the proof I want to see where you portioned off quadranced off small portions you know of the lake and you tested those because Another thing that we don't know with eDNA is with a large body, a stream, yeah, a stream is easy to test eDNA because even if a species drank upstream, if there's saliva or DNA that washes down the stream, um, potentially you could check for that DNA 50 feet down the stream and still get an accurate re reading. But does that apply with lake DNA when you've got vast bodies of water where you don't know if it, the species actually even comes into that body of water. You were talking earlier too about, you know, uh, the migration patterns of animals and stuff. A lot of yes. people think that, you know, um, Nessie or whichever one we're talking about, if they're following a food supply, if they took these eDNA samples at a time when um, whichever creature wasn't in the area, you would also not have that. So you would have right, to have a exactly. DNA sample. And there was also, I believe with, uh, if we're talking about the, the um, Jamel um, eDNA uh, testing, um, they, they, when they gave the readout of it, there was quite a percentage of unknown eDNA that they couldn't account for in the lakes. They didn't know what it belonged to. So they are basing the plesiosaur, mosasaur um, eDNA off of something reptilian. Mm -hmm. Well, what if plesiosaurs and mosasaurs genetically weren't reptilian? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask What, you what that if too. their DNA is something completely different than than what we have in the scientific records and they are overlooking that because they want to disprove it mm -hmm. so the if if we're, we're talking about this like or we have been talking about this that um the uh plesiosaurs and stuff were reptilians um but if they were if they were not then this question is irrelevant but if they were reptilian, um, they would they would have to come to the surface to breathe more often than people are seeing them. 
Um, right. You know, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, with these smaller, I mean, smaller lakes, I mean, they're still big, but, you know, there's a lot of people out on, you know, the Great Lakes and, you know, Loch Ness. I mean, people watch the, the Loch Ness camera year round, 24-7 on the um, the webcam and stuff. And if these people are, are keeping that many eyes on the lake and these uh, creatures have to come up to breathe, it stands to reason that there'd be a lot more sightings. So maybe these things aren't reptilian and they're some other aquatic uh, amphibian mm -hmm. or um, fish. Yeah, I could see I could see the mosasaur being um, having genetic similarities to a crocodile or alligator. They are built very similar. They do inhabit, you know, aquatic areas. The difference is we don't think mosasaurs actually came on land, whereas alligators, crocodiles, any crocodilian can actually come on land, lay its eggs, and then go back into the water. We don't think mosasaurs did that. We think that they stayed in water mm -hmm. for their whole life cycle. Mm -hmm. Same with plesiosaurs. Now, the original Loch Ness sighting and stuff, I believe, uh, we, we all kind of know that that's a hoax. The guy had the uh, elephant um, yeah. trash can and stomped around up by the road and stuff and claimed that it walked on land. So that yep, and then the thing... surgeon's photos. But, you know, if you look back into um, the folklore of Scotland, there was actually different water monsters that they associated with the different locks. And Loch Ness is one of the most famous, but mm -hmm. there are other locks in Scotland that oh, yeah. have reports of water monsters that we don't focus on because, you know, Nessie is mm -hmm. um, so much more, you know, um, no. I think people, you know, think that if they're going to see it anywhere, it's going to be Loch Ness. Mm -hmm. um, but what is their explanation for the water monsters that are said to live in the other locks? It can't all be eels, <laughs> mm -hmm. because I'm pretty sure those other locks do not have access to um, any, um, you know, ocean water. Mm -hmm. And it's very, um, you know, they're saying that these eels came in through the ocean. As far as I know, there's not any species of eels that are like the bull shark, where it can go from salt water to fresh water. And then migrate back out. They might be able to exist in brackish water, but that's going to be the areas in between the fresh body of water and the saltwater body of water where those types of water mix mm -hmm. and give it the ability to um, exist, you know, temporarily in both bodies of water. But eventually, it's going to have to go back to either the freshwater or the saltwater, depending on, you know, its biology and what it tolerates. So where I was going with that question was, have you heard any other reports since the, the hoaxed report of, of these things coming up on land? The, the only one that I um, really paid attention to was there was a husband and wife who and this was this was early 1900s who were driving along the 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 road um, coastway and they said that a i would describe it as a brontosaur brachiosaur type creature came ambling out from one side of the road crossed in front of them 
and then headed down to the water. And they didn't have a, a camera or anything like that with them, just their eyewitness testimony. And that is the only report that I've really ever focused on of people saying that it was able to come on land. And that's Nessie you're talking about? Yes, that would be Nessie. But they described it more as a um, a sauropod, you know, right. like a, a brachiosaurus, brontosaurus. Um, because at that time, people thought that because of their immense size, that the sauropods lived in water, like swamps. Nowadays, we know that a creature weighing that much in a swamp would have just sunk to its, its uh, you know, uh, backbone and been stuck in the mud for whatever predator wanted to come along to eat it. So we now know that they did not um, buoyancy themselves with water. They were pretty much a land animal, maybe went down to the water to drink, but definitely did not go swimming in it or, or um, entered into the water. Interesting. Isn't it amazing how like science we, we change how we're, we're thinking based on new evidence and stuff, you know, the things that we learn. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Look at movies like Jurassic Park and how so much since 1994 has changed with how we view even the dinosaurs that if that movie had been made now, uh, the way that the dinosaurs were um, pictured in the movie would have been completely different. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's the information that you have at the moment to draw your conclusions upon. But you have to be, you know, um, you have to be open and willing to change your ideas and the way you, you know, look at things um, when new evidence is, you know, introduced. So it's it's always a new learning experience. So one more thing on these guys. Do you think that um, you're, you're obviously familiar with Mokeli Mbembe, right? Yes. Okay. So anybody listening, Mokelia Membe is uh, basically described as a, a large sauropod, long-necked dinosaur from the Congo uh, African River Basin. Um, so do you think that that could be a, uh, a Nessie creature as well, or do you think it's, it's more of what they're describing? So they, they describe that as um, it's a long-necked creature with a, with a long tail, but they describe it as having legs, not flippers. So that changes the plesiosaur, mosasaur theory and makes it look more like a sauropod creature. But in in the jungles of Africa and the jungle jungles around the world, um, South America, Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, uh, um, Asia. Uh, People are, you know, scientists, biologists find new species every year. Mm -hmm. So for us to say, oh, there's no, that's, there's no such thing as that. For a long time, scientists didn't believe that there was pygmy elephants. Yeah, I was just until that. lo and behold, they found the species living in the jungles, and you know, here are these little elephants, um, you know that. Actually, they are a throwback to prehistoric times because we know for certain that things like Titanoboa or um, the other um, giant snakes of that size ate things like the pygmy elephants. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and true. so I know Titanoboa is South uh, American, but 
there were snake species that were comparable in size that lived in, in Africa. So we do know that, you know, if you're going to stand there and say, well, there was no such thing as this and it's, you know, impossible. Well, wait a year and see what science, you know, scientists or paleontologists or amateur um, citizen, you know, scientists find. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was actually just thinking about those elephants. You know, people are saying, you know, well, you're talking about finding a dinosaur in the middle of the jungle. How can something that big go unfound? And I'm just thinking, you know, well, yeah, but those little elephants were just found. So, I mean, they're not right. little bitty guys. Right. I mean, they're not new species of frog or bird that you, you miss. I mean, these things are out there, you know, so it's it's very possible that something this large could go, you know, unfound wherever it is. Cool. And, you know, and, and, you know, that, that is what any, any person who is stuck in their, um, their thinking process on, nope, we've discovered everything that there is to discover. Mm-hmm. No, we haven't. Mm-hmm. We haven't. I, I, I believe that paleontology has only uncovered a small percentage of life that, has lived on earth and has gone extinct. And I think that there are new, there will, you know, for the next hundred years, there will be new species that will be found as technology um, becomes more advanced and we can explore areas that, you know, we never thought were possible, um, you know, for, for ever, forever, um, you know, people have said that nothing le- lived in the depths of the ocean. Well, now we know that these tubular worms live next to the to the thermal vents of volcanoes or the Earth's crust, and they do quite well. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you can never say something doesn't exist just because you haven't, you know, found it yet. Mm-hmm. And with Mokeli and Bembe, um, you know, the, the the tribesmen over there, the African um, tribesmen, they have experienced things for their whole lifetime there, generations of their lifetimes there. And for them to, you know, say, we know this exists. And for us, you know, as scientists or um, uh uneducated to their way of life, their region of life, to go in there and say, well, that's not possible. Well, you're disrespecting them because they have firsthand knowledge of it. They've had experience with it. They, you know, have generations who have witnessed it and seen it. And just because it doesn't, you know, run to your, you know, your side and sit on command, you know, like your, your, your dog does, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that it's being a natural species and it'll do it whenever it wants to. Mm-hmm. Very true. Wow. Um, that, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I agree. And like the whole thing is people need to, you know, if the people who say these things don't exist, but believe it them, I mean, like for the scientists that are out there looking at this stuff a lot, I hate to say it, but a lot of scientists are, are like stuck in their ways and it's going to take more of the citizen scientists, the people, you know, like like you and me that are out there looking for this stuff, 
with an open mind to find the evidence and find these creatures because nobody else is out there looking. So for the people that want to, you know, want Bigfoot or the the lake monsters or any of this stuff to be proven to exist, I mean, you got to go out there and get the evidence yourself. And, and that that's exactly what it, you know, what it boils down to. You know, you can you can have a eyewitness sighting. Um you can even take pictures and video and they will come back with saying, well, eyewitness testimony, uh, even though it's good enough for court case mm -hmm. to find somebody guilty or innocent, um, science does not, you know, accept eyewitness testimony. They want, you know, they want physical evidence. So nice they want, you know, hair or tissue sample. They want picture or video, or the living, you know, creature, you know, uh, right there in front of them. And it's like, that's not going to happen 99% of the time. Even with species like the mountain, you know, gorillas, it mm -hmm. takes a very long time to build a rapport with them where they will act naturally while you are in their presence. Mm -hmm. Jane Goodall will tell you that. You can't just show up one day and not expect to be, you know, attacked, um, you know, by, you know, members of, of you know, that tribe of uh, gorilla apes or any other, you know, species. You have to introduce yourself to them very slowly, very non-threatening, and be there for a course of time before you start witnessing natural behavior again. Mm -hmm. And Bigfoots are... If they're as intelligent as we think they are, which is about human level because they they have choose not to interact with us, but they are far superior than the other primates in the world, um, then they've made it clear. Mm -hmm. The only time we're going to get a, a glimpse of them is by accident, and the only thing they're going to leave is foot tracks, maybe some hair, if you're lucky enough to get it before a bird collects it for its nest or um, the wind blows it, you know, to the corners of the earth. Um, you know, maybe teeth, maybe, you know, bones. Um, and these are, you know, these are the things that we have to go out and find because the Bigfoots just aren't going to stand there and let you, you know, interact with them. You're not going to find one on a podcast, in other words. No. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe Bodine, maybe Bodine. Yeah. Bodine. Yeah. <laughs> will Will Bodine be at the June Fourth convention? Um, I don't think so. I, okay. He He will. I'm trying to think. Um, no, I don't, because I'm friends with them. But you You would have to to talk to them. Um, and that's quite a ways for that because they are down in Ohio. Oh, Ohio so. Squatch. So he's he's actually not a Bigfoot. He's a grass man. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kentucky. actually. He, <laughs> he's from the Ohio he, tribe. He needs to change his name. He's, he's Bodine the, the grass man now. <laughs> yep. All right, cool. So, again, uh, you are going to be speaking uh, June 4th in the Marinette Menominee Bigfoot and Paranormal Convention at the Riverside Golf Club in uh, Menominee, Michigan. 
and tickets are on sale on the Wisconsin Caps website, and uh, you can click on the homepage under public events, and there's a link right on our homepage. Um, where else are you going to be, Shitan? Oh, my goodness. Um, so in April, um, the Beast of Bray Road Conference in Elkhorn, uh, Wisconsin. Um, May is the um, Thunder Bay Paranormal Conference up in Marquette, uh, Michigan. Obviously, June, I will be uh, at your event. Um, the July end of July, I believe, is the Ann Arbor, or actually, it's the Michigan Bigfoot Conference because they're doing it in Chelsea. And then I will be at my Paracon in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and the Dewey Lake Monster Conference, um, September 10th. And that's what I have planned for this year so far. So I'm waiting to see who's running in the fall and uh, what events I can make it to. Because um, now I have a lot more uh, traveling to do because uh, with me starting up the Weird Travels magazine and the Rock Hound, um, that means I actually get to go and uh, look for rocks and fossils and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it, it's always fun to, to, to do uh, uh, things like that. So uh, I'll be traveling. I'll be presenting. Um, You'll, you'll see me here and there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we will. Hopefully everyone listening will go out and find you as well. Uh, if people can't come out in person, where can they find you online or uh, anywhere else? Sure. So they can find me on Facebook, Instagram. Um, those are usually the, the two that I'm mostly on. Um, Shatan Noir, S-H-E-T-A-N-N-O-I-R. You can also find my publications on Amazon if you just type in Shatan Noir or Squatch GQ Magazine, LLC. Um, you can also find my Facebook groups, um, Squatch GQ Magazine, uh, Dinosauria and Prehistoric Creatures Magazine, the Great Lakes Center for the Unexplained, um, and... You can also find my website, um, Shatan Noir, uh, cryptozoologist. Um, if you just type in Shatan Noir, it should bring up my website. And uh, for Squatch GQ, if you type in Squatch GQ magazine, it'll bring up the um, the website with all the, the different magazines um, on it. Awesome. I will do my best to find all that for our listeners and put it in the show notes of this podcast as well to make it a lot easier. I'll do my best. <laughs> um, but until the next time we see each other, I, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Um, thank you for having me on the show today. Definitely. And I think uh, I, I was on yours. I don't know if that's out yet or not, but. Um, I believe, uh, let's see, I think I did that one back in December. So I'm pretty sure he launched them immediately. So. Um, I believe it was back in December. Um, it's through um, Soul uh, Anchor for the Soul Paranormal Network. So I will I will see if I can grab the link and, and get it to you. Cool. So I'm I'm out there somewhere on your podcast already at this point. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the gist of it. But um, so if you're looking for more of us uh, chatting, I am over there. Otherwise, until next time, we will see you for sure in June. Um, yeah, that's it.
Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, This has been Whispers from the Dark. I'm your host, Barnaby. I'm Ma. And? Chantan Noir. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Whispers from the Dark. To find out more about cryptids, anomalies, and the paranormal society, visit us at our website at wisconsincaps.com. That's wisconsincaps.com. There you can find links to all of our social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and our Patreon. You will see links to our online store as well, where you can get t-shirts, DVDs, and more. If you click on the public events page, you can find out where you can meet us in person and all the public events we have coming up. If you enjoy our podcast or our YouTube shows, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wisconsin Caps. There you can find behind-the-scenes pictures and videos from all of our media, as well as bonus footage and evidence that we have collected. If you have encountered something you can't explain, we want to hear from you. Visit our website and click on Submit a Report on our main screen. You can choose to leave your contact information or simply remain anonymous. You can also reach us via email at wisconsincaps at gmail.com. If you would like to be a guest on our show, please contact us on our Whispers from the Dark podcast page on Facebook, or send us an email at wisconsincaps.com. Remember to like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch or find us.